Let's turn in the scriptures to Proverbs chapter 10. Today, I'd like to lead us in giving our attention to God's wisdom in Proverbs 10, the second half of the chapter. That's Proverbs 10, beginning in verse 15 and going to the end of the chapter. You might remember we studied through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 through the spring. And that was basically a poetic letter from a father to his sons. Lecture after lecture after lecture reported in that letter. And we learned that wisdom is a skill. It's particularly a relational skill of pleasing God in every facet of life. That's what the word wisdom means. It means skill. The skill of knowing how to relate to God in every facet of life. Beginning in Proverbs chapter 10, rather than having lectures in a letter form, we have proverbial statements, brief little aphorisms, memorable statements that just come one after another after another. They're brief, punchy statements of wisdom about seemingly random, assorted things of life. They come at us in the same way that daily life comes at us. And it's just one after another, seemingly random. Now, these brief statements of wisdom were either authored by Solomon or they were collected by Solomon. Solomon was Israel's king around 900 B.C., so about 900 years before King Jesus. Early in his reign, it's recorded in 1 Kings 3, that God promised to give Solomon, quote, a wise and discerning mind. And over time, the history records it, it became evident, quote, the wisdom of God was in this man to reign justly. And then the history goes on to summarize Solomon's life like this. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like sand on the seashore. It was it was. You were unable to test it and calculate his IQ, as it were. So Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the the people's wisdom in that region of the world. It goes on to say he spoke 3,000 proverbs. I, I can't imagine memorizing the entire book of Proverbs, let alone authoring thousands of proverbs and speaking them the only king wiser than solomon of course is jesus jesus himself claimed be audacious if he didn't die for us jesus himself claimed one greater than solomon is standing in front of you the reason i point out this history is to not only give us a little bit of background and context but to say The wisdom that we're reading this morning is not merely man's wisdom. We are repeatedly told in the history of the Old Testament, God gave Solomon this wisdom. We are reading God's wisdom through Solomon. So let's read Proverbs 10, starting in verse 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life. 
The gain of the wicked leads to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with his blessing. Doing wrong is like joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked will be no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked know what's perverse. I would summarize the main idea in this way. God wants you, he wants all of us here to diligently compare the contrasting lives and destinies of the wicked and righteous. He wants us to look at wicked people and righteous people and he wants us to diligently pay attention to the contrast in their lives and in their ultimate destinies. It's clear in this passage that Solomon is repeatedly contrasting righteous and wicked people. And he especially contrasts their lives and destinies. In talking about their lives, he talks about the things that they take delight in. He talks about the way they handle money. He talks about the way they talk. And in talking about their destiny, he repeatedly talks about the future that they have to look forward to or not. And what God communicates to us in these verses is very practical for today. It's the sort of thing that you can take out of here and you can say, God, shape the way I use my tongue at lunchtime. It's practical. And it is also anchoring for eternity. It's profound in its rich breadth. Now you're going to have to put on your boots 
you're going to have to tie them up really well. We're getting ready to go through a beautiful jungle, but it is thick. You might have even sensed it. We're only looking at 18 verses, but every verse kind of turns the subject and, and your mind struggles to catch up with it. So, engage. We're going to explore the five facets of this passage. Interestingly, there's a little bit more organization to it than first meets the eye. I'm going to try to point that out as we go. Five ways to summarize what's going on in these 18 verses. First, in verses 15 and 16, God essentially says, compare how righteous and wicked people use wealth. These verses focus on wealth. There was a section on wealth earlier in the chapter as well, in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. But according to verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's where he runs for security. While the poverty of the poor will cause them ruin. Now, clearly, this verse is cautioning against both wealth and poverty. I think as Americans, we desperately need the first part of the warning. Many of us feel like we're poor. If you make more than about $10,000 a year, you are above average in terms of global income. And we must beware what this first phrase of verse 15 says of making money our security. Of running to it rather than relying to God in times of crisis. Of living for money. Of craving more money. Of not being content with what we have. It's interesting that one teacher uh, on the Proverbs points out that the term wealth is used ten times in the Proverbs. And five of the times it's warned against, five of the times it's considered a blessing. And that's because money itself is not inherently evil. It's our hearts that are so prone to idolize it. Charles Bridges, famous teacher from a few centuries ago, captured the entire Bible's teaching on wealth in a simple sentence. I love it. He said, The rich are truly safe when they're poor in spirit and large in heart. While the poor are truly safe when they are rich in faith and content with godliness. Amen. Well said. God help us to beware of wealth. The next proverb, verse 16 remains on the same subject of wealth, but then it contrasts how the wicked and righteous spend what they make, how they spend their income, their gain. Righteous people, according to verse 16, use their gain to promote life, while wicked people sinfully squander their income. To work this out a little bit more practically, God's people... Don't squander money by spending it on sinful pleasures or by going into foolish debt, spending money we don't have in order to get things we don't need. Instead, God's people are careful stewards of their income. They use it to provide shelter and food for their families. They use it in order to educate and care for and bless others. They use it especially 
to get the gospel of life to our community and world. I hope that what I just described in those life-giving budgetary matters, I hope that everyone at Tri-County would say, yeah, that's where the bulk of my income goes, is to providing for the needs of those I'm responsible for, to investing in them, and to getting the gospel out to our community and world. This is what righteous people do with their income. It leads to life. It tends to life. God wants us to compare, to diligently compare how righteous and wicked people use wealth. Secondly, he wants us to compare how righteous and wicked people respond to instruction. This is verse 17, and it returns to one of the central concerns of the book of Proverbs. That central concern is teachability. If you're a teachable person, that is, if you're a humble person who welcomes correction, according to verse 17, you're on the path that leads to life. Notice, the people who are on the path to life are not perfect people. They're the people who often err and receive correction over it. But if you hate being corrected, you're already on the wrong path. You're on the path that leads to death, according to this verse. And if you hate being corrected, you also need to feel the guilt of influencing others to join you on that rebellious path. It's a sobering verse indeed. Now ultimately... The only people who find life, eternal life, are those who humbly listen to the instruction, the message of the gospel of Jesus. They personally receive it. And they keep walking in it. A verse like verse 17 should lead each of us, really, honestly, to begin every week, to begin every day, saying, God, humble me. Help me not to approach this day with pride. Instead, help me to be teachable. Help me to be correctable. And we should every week prioritize sitting under God's instruction privately with an open Bible in front of us and corporately receiving the word from capable teachers. We should say, God, I want to receive your instruction. Give me a tender heart. That's a person who's on the way of life. Third, compare how righteous people and wicked people communicate. In verse 18, we get a set, it's the beginning of a set of four Proverbs on the subject of speech. Verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. And then there's another set of two that conclude the chapter. I'm going to consider all six of them together in this point, but they actually come at us in sets of two. Verses 18 and 19 focus on what our speech reveals about us, while verses 20 and 21 focus on how valuable or how worthless our speech may be. In verse 18, we're basically told that speech, what we say, reveals the heart, what's in our hearts. If your heart is full of hatred, according to verse 18, your words will either be deceptive because they're covering your spite for the person you're talking to, 
or they will be hurtful, actively, positively hurtful, because you're slandering or gossiping about those you despise. Verse 18 basically teaches us that our words hold up something of a mirror to us of what's going on in our hearts. We often will wrongly say, oh, I didn't mean that. What we said reveals what's in our hearts. We've got to be honest. If necessary, every one of us should reflect on on what our speech recently has been saying about what's going on inside our hearts. And if necessary, we should grieve, confess, repent what we see in that mirror. Turn from it. Grieve over it. Ask God to do a work in our hearts to churn up that animosity, that hardened hatred that's in there that thinks ourselves so important and others so little. Oh God, churn up my, my hard heart. Verse 18 should lead us to say that. Verse 19 focuses on the amount of our words. Wise people are marked by few words, by restraining our words, while foolish people just talk too much. I think Derek Kidner's summary of the entire Proverbs on speech is, is beautiful. He says, let your words, Christian, be true, kind, and few. Good summary. Good advice. Verse 20 describes how a righteous person's mouth is incalculably valuable. Some of us have experienced that. Maybe you are a, an adult and you remember wise counsel that your parent shared with you at one of the darkest moments of your life. It's when you were going through a really hard time and you look back on those words that your parents spoke to you when you were at such a low time. And, and if you tried to put a price tag on them, you might say, I wouldn't trade that counsel my parents gave to me at that low time for $10,000. But when you think about a verse like verse 20 in ultimate terms. Some of you, Tri-County, all of us, have had someone who has spoken to us the wisdom of the gospel. And you have become an inheritor of eternal life. You're going to inherit the kingdom. And from the, the perspective of life in the kingdom, you wouldn't trade that valuable counsel for $10 billion. You can't put a price tag on wise counsel. That's what verse 20 says. Verse 21 then says that the lips of the righteous shepherd many. The word feed is the word for shepherd. But by contrast, foolish people, they refuse to be shepherded by anyone's words. And they're going to die and ultimately die in their sins, because they refuse to be shepherded by wise counsel. Jump down to the last two verses of the chapter, and they bookend this theme of speech that leads other people to life. Or by contrast, if you refuse to listen to wise speech, it will lead to death. You see the bookend there at the end of the chapter. 
Now it's here, just before we get to the heart of the passage. We're moving toward the heart. I want to park and just reflect for a minute on the statuses of righteous and wicked and on the consequences of life and death. My my explanations have already led in this direction, but I really now want to shine a light on these words, righteous, wicked, life, death, that have come up repeatedly in the second half of Proverbs 10. It's absolutely critical to point out that righteous people are not those people who are better than most. Wicked people aren't people who say, you know what, my, my bad works just outweigh my good. We're not talking about scales here. We're not talking about comparisons here. It's critical to point out that even according to this very chapter, righteous people are those who recognize that they frequently need to be corrected and they receive correction. In other words, righteous people instinctively know that they're often wrong. Hmm. The same author, Solomon, throughout this book and other of his wisdom writings, explains that there's no person alive who doesn't sin. He explains that wicked people are those who live as if they never need to confess any sin or forsake any sin. He says wicked people in chapter 30 are those who live as if they've done no wrong. The most famous event Scripture reveals, the most descriptive that Scripture gets on Solomon is on dedication day of the temple. When he dedicates his temple, you couldn't even count the number of sacrifices he offered. This man understood that righteousness does not mean perfection. It does not mean sinlessness. And he understood that it means relating to God through blood sacrifice. When you put the Proverbs into context of the entire Old Testament, a righteous person, a righteous person is one who understands I'm a sinner. They admit their sin. They trust in the blood sacrifice that God himself provides. And of course, all of the sacrifices that Solomon made at the temple were pointing ahead to Jesus, who made the once-for-all sacrifice and rendered the temple unnecessary from that point on. Going further, when Solomon promises life, we've just talked about righteous wicked, when he promises life, he's not merely thinking that you're going to live a few extra years with a little more happiness than most people. Though, as I've pointed out in weeks past, generally speaking, that is often true. He's not merely warning that wrong choices might lead to an early death. Again, that may be true. Instead, Solomon, when he talks about life and death, is envisioning death as an eternal punishment from God, and he's envisioning life as eternal life in the kingdom of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So I just say, when we're deeply exploring, diligently comparing righteous and wicked, their lives and their destinies, we have to understand that righteous people are those who confess their sin, who trust in God's sacrifice for our sin, who forsake our sin, and who keep receiving correction about it. That's a righteous person. And the life envisioned for the righteous 
is an eternal life in God's kingdom. If you have not admitted your sin, if you have difficulty admitting that you're wrong, if you are not a correctable, humble person, then I urge you right now. We sang it in Psalm 2. Fall prostrate on your face before God's chosen king for earth. Take refuge in his grace before it's too late. The only way that you can be righteous is if the truly, perfectly, only righteous man dies in your place and wraps you in his royal garment. Now, you're going to see as we move into the heart of Proverbs 10, the second half of Proverbs 10, you're going to see that it's clear that the life being described for the righteous is an eternal life. Here's the heart. Compare how the righteous and wicked face the future. This is absolutely beautiful. I've read Proverbs 10 numerous times in my life, and I've never seen the beauty of this section of Scripture. Compare how righteous and wicked people face the future. Between these sets of Proverbs on speech, there are two sections of four verses that mirror each other. Each section begins in verse 22 and in verse 25 with the joy of knowing God. He adds no sorrow with his blessing on his people. Meditating on that, this is true ultimately. Even the sorrows he presently allows are for our good. And he promises, even these temporary sorrows he allows, he's going to wipe away all of our tears. Those who fear him find life with no eternal sorrow. Hmm. Thank you, Lord. The next set, verses 23 and 28, teach that walking with God is full of pleasure today. It's a delight for God's people to do what's right. And we are filled with the hope of joy for eternity, especially the joys we focused on last week. It doesn't get any better than seeing the king in all his beauty. That's the hope of the righteous that's going to be ultimate joy, the beatific vision, the the sight that is full of happiness, of blessedness. The wicked, by contrast, in verses 24 and 29, will get the destruction that they fear. The storms of judgment are going to pass over the wicked and they will be no more. But according to verses 25 and 30, the righteous will be established forever. Yes, the righteous will never be removed. Profound mirroring in these sets of four verses. This promise that the righteous have an eternal foundation 
especially in contrast to the wicked who are going to endure the storms of judgment and be no more. That promise reminds me very much, I don't know if it does for you, of Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where he says that the wise man, the one who follows me, who submits to my teaching, he's like a person who builds his life, builds his house on a solid rock-like foundation. By contrast, the foolish person is the one who rejects my authority and won't listen to Jesus' instruction. He's like a person who builds his house without a foundation, builds his house on sand. And Jesus said, when the storms of judgment come, when the rains come down, when they face God's judgment, those who have refused Jesus' authority and instruction, their lives will collapse under judgment. However, those who submit to Jesus' authority will stand. They will endure. Their foundation will remain through all the trials of life and they will have nothing to fear when they stand before God. Profound truth that Jesus echoes. Now, Pastor Greg recently shared with our church family a video of his daughters singing in a very lively way. I think some of you saw this. It reminded me a little bit of the old high school cheers that say, we got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit. I mean, they were just trying to top each other. And they were singing, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. I love the way they sang the song. I don't like the original words to it. We, through the years, have adapted them. The conclusion of the song is, So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the trials will come down. The trials will come down, but Christ will hold you up. Now, they were shouting this. It turned into a total shouting match. But, believers... The trials will come down, but Christ will hold you up. The righteous will never be removed. The righteous have an eternal foundation. If you want to sing a more adultish kind of song, how about how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord? The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The righteous have a foundation that will never be removed. Finally, compare how the righteous and wicked people approach the things that matter most. Verse 26. Right in the middle of these two mirroring sections is a verse with two (laughs) vivid illustrations. Look at the illustrations on what laziness is like in verse 26. Have you ever tried to drink a shot of vinegar? I occasionally do. And until you get used to it, the sourness of the vinegar is so revolting, it's hard to swallow. It it makes you instinctively try to throw up. Have you ever sat in front of a campfire with thick white smoke that just always seems to be blowing in your direction, right where you're sitting, 
and the white smoke saturates your eyes in, in a way that's so irritating, it makes your eyes burn and tear. Right? In verse 26, Solomon says, that's what it's like to have a lazy servant. I don't think Solomon is primarily warning the people who are listening to him about hiring decisions. I don't think he's worried about hiring lazy people. I think he's warning about being a lazy person who irritates the one who chose you to be a servant. I think he's warning all of us, not primarily about other lazy people, but about being ourselves lazy and irritating the God we exist to serve. So in the center of these mirroring sections on the eternal security of the righteous, Solomon says, be diligent. Interesting. You can take this verse in every facet. You can take it about being diligent at work tomorrow. You can take it about being diligent in school this semester. You can take it about being diligent by getting up on time. Things like, like, you can take it in terms of don't be lazy in any facet of life. But I think Solomon is grouping these together so we would think about laziness in matters that, that are of eternal significance, in matters of eternal righteousness. I think he's basically saying something like, when it comes to the sort of righteousness that can secure you forever, don't irritate God and be lazy about it. If I were to put it in a New Testament nutshell, 2 Peter 1.10, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Don't be lazy when it comes to matters of eternal righteousness, matters of eternal significance. I could work this out in a couple different ways. Every individual here should be diligent to study the Bible for yourself. You should know for yourself what the chapters say. Every individual here, you need to take personal responsibility for your own discipleship. Don't think that, well, my growth, my Christian growth is other people's responsibility. Thankfully, God does give responsibility to other people, but don't be lazy. Take the responsibility and the initiative for growth yourself. You should read this verse and say, God, help me be diligent to fight my sin and to cultivate godly habits in my life. God, help me to be diligent when it comes to eternal righteousness. I would go back to the issue of irritability. And I would say, Christian teens, Christian kids, don't irritate your parents with laziness, especially when it comes to matters of eternity. And every person here, I say, don't irritate God with your laziness about matters he has clearly revealed in his word. I'm going to lead us in prayer trying to model the way that we should always read and respond to the Proverbs. 
Father, we hear Your wisdom and we say You are holy, we are not. You are the one who gives us life and wealth to steward. You're the one who has given us instruction to receive. You're the one who's given us mouths to communicate. And we confess that we are abusers of every gift you've given. We have sought our security in money, not in you. We have lazily ignored your word. And we've used our tongues to speak countless times cruelty against others. Oh, Father, when we read your word, we say you are holy, we are not. And Jesus, we look to you and we say, save us. You are the only holy one who lived a perfectly righteous life. And yet, you were cut off as if you were wicked. Your life ended early as if you were a fool. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. For those who have not called out on you, I pray that you would help them to see that you are their only hope of being forgiven of all their greed and their arrogance and their rebellion and their unkindness and their laziness. Oh Lord, I pray that people here would run to you and find forgiveness and life through confessing and forsaking their sin. And Jesus, I pray that for those of us who have called on you for salvation and we have found forgiveness in you, I pray that we would keep on confessing our sin and keep on finding forgiveness for our sin because we keep sinning and we keep needing forgiveness. Lord, I pray that the way our Christian life began in repenting of our sin and calling out on you, I pray that that's the way that our Christian life would continue, that we would be correctable tender-hearted individuals who allow you to lead us, to correct us, to set us back on the right path again. And I pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would control those of us who belong to Jesus. We cannot become more like Jesus in our own strength. Lord Jesus, you are the one who's forgiven. And Holy Spirit, you're the one who can empower us to obey Obeying these Proverbs and learning from them won't come from within us. The power to be content with what we have, Spirit, comes from You. The power to control our tongues does not come from within us. Holy Spirit, we need You. We need You to control us and make us more like Jesus. We pray this on Jesus' authority. Amen.